Andrew Barry. Thanks for joining me. Robbie, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start with a really important question. Can dinner parties really save the world? <laughs> I figured you'd be so a good person to ask. Yeah, so you've been reading my my blog. Um, yeah, that was an interesting piece I wrote. It was a reflection actually on on a year, or, sorry, five years of dinners that we were hosting with with a group of friends where we used to spend summers together six plus years ago. And um, the opportunity to do that sort of fell away. People were like often doing their own things. So we thought we wanted a way to kind of get together and stay together as a group of there were like eight, eight of us. Um, and so we started a little dinner club and I actually got this idea from my parents. Um, we would, there would be a host, there'd be a set of sort of rules for it. And we would have like a, a mascot that the host would then bestow on the new host. And, you know, I learned, we learned so much from that. We, we've got this probably 90 page Google doc now of write-ups from each, first of all, I mean, mostly each other's lives, but also just like comments on the events of the day and, you know, of the time. And it's, now it's five years of history in that document. And so I wrote this article now during COVID because we haven't been able to do these events anymore this year. And so we started doing a few virtual ones and I just realized how much I missed it and how much value there was in bringing people together to eat, to talk over a meal. Like there's something about that element as well, like getting together and discussing something over a meal. You've got this other event to, to distract you. And I think it just like you know, cognitively loosens your, your mind and, and people just um, sharing what they're working on, what their you know, updates in their life. It was amazing. So I, I, we did feel like we solved a lot of the world's problems doing that. And, and I think uh, I want to encourage everyone to, to sort of organize dinner parties and to think about like a little bit of the formalities around them. Well, that's, that, that is one thing I'm missing in this lockdown, having friends over, new friends over, uh, I agree. That's, you know, the level of, you know, in some ways there's no topic out of bounds when you have a good yeah. meal in front of you. You can just, yeah, whether it's cracking jokes or talking about politics or religion or what, what have you, you can get yeah. to some pretty meaty issues while you're eating <laughs> whatever you're exactly. eating. And exactly. uh, it takes the edge off. There's an easy segue to, Hey, pass me the salt or whatever. I mean, it just, yeah. um, and even, you know, I think back to the dinner parties I would have, it's usually a collaborative thing where you're, everyone's helping, <laughs> bringing yeah. a dish and sharing a story of the dish or yeah. helping make the main dish and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Those are even the best ones. And yeah, we, we had a, a pretty, pretty strict rule as well that whatever happened or whatever was spoken about at the dinner table stayed at the dinner table as well. So just encouraged an environment of um, really deep reflection and, and sharing. And, and, you know, when I wrote that article, I found Emmanuel Kant and, Thomas Jefferson like wrote like essays on this and used to do this religiously. And, and Jefferson specifically talks about how important it was like how he did business. He would have dinner parties at the white house. Um, so yeah, in, your, in your article, I, you shared that Jefferson would have like uh, an object for conversation, <laughs> like, yeah. a converse, like an icebreaker, like a jar a of curiosity or something, yeah. something curious, yeah, yeah. you know, to talk about uh, a yeah. leader I recently coached is uh very social and part of a, the company he runs is a consulting firm. And he's quite well known for hosting gatherings, parties. It could be, you know, happy hours or dinner conversations. And uh, he'll always have like 
like table topics, like topics to yeah. discuss or yeah. things that can spur conversation that can get it going. And that, yeah. that was a pretty interesting idea as well, just to use, I guess, a, a, you can think of it almost like a creativity hack or tool just yeah. to break the ice a bit. Completely. And a bit of an agenda to it. It actually helps even we, so we're doing them now virtually with, with the same group of friends and we set an agenda and we have like an, an hour and a half conversation on zoom and it just makes so much difference to, to have that structure to it. And then how generative that then becomes, it's a, it's just a guideline, right? So it's, yeah, yeah it, it's great. I, I'm with you as well. I miss that so much and I can't wait to kind of go back to the, those group gatherings. Yeah. So Andrew, you strike me as a, uh, transformative learning expert is how you strike me you know uh, we've just known each other for a few months now and and i've read your blog a bit and followed you on twitter and online and i mean that's how i see you a transformative learning expert i'm curious how would you describe yourself and what you do yeah so i appreciate that um and i think you see that because we share something in common and that we're both lifelong learners like we default to wanting to learn and to grow and you and I both seek out as many online courses as we can have the capacity to handle and probably more than we have the capacity to handle. Um, and I think that's how I identify myself as, as a lifelong learner. Um, I, I've, I'm also a practitioner in the space and I've been doing this for about 15 years now, um, starting with a big uh, professional services firm, then working with a, a startup that was doing some really interesting training in the hospitality industry and then for the last four or five years um, with my business and yeah i think marrying those two things being a, a an avid learner myself and being a practitioner and helping others or helping people teach so that others can learn better um i think it's marrying those two is kind of where i see that um that identity forming now and the transformational bits is is what's really interesting to me now especially because it's it's really what I think we've seen online courses deliver for us, like truly transformational experiences, um, which, which is really exciting. So I've enjoyed kind of deconstructing what goes into making that happen. So you, you started not doing what you're doing now, which we'll get into in a minute, but you started actually as an accountant. Yeah. And started <laughs> yeah. Accountancy. I, I'm fascinated with moments of insight that lead people to make choices and decisions and changes. I'd love just to spend some time. If you can share what inspired you to go into account, wanting to be an accountant, becoming a chartered accountant, and then you made a switch and you went into learning and development, and then you made another switch to entrepreneurship. So maybe we can yeah. trace back that path and what were some of the moments that led you to go from A to B to C? Yeah. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Um, you know, I think the accountancy path was something that I'd settled on pretty early, like end of high school. I was always one of those kids who, you know, d did really well at school and, and was like pretty academic and bookish. And, and I think like in a way was very steeped in like traditional education, like that whole like memorization frameworks and, you know, the getting the, the top marks on, in class and stuff. And so, being um, growing up in South Africa, where I did chartered accountancy, is like the premier profession for someone who who's who's you know that that ilk, and um, it was you know it was just the natural thing to do. And all, all of my friends, like we we all kind of did that, uh, followed that path. Um, it's the most rigorous, one of the most rigorous professional qualifications to get in South Africa and, and certainly in the world. Um, and so, 
yeah. So that was just a natural progression and I, and I did it and then got into the profession and then you, you serve an apprenticeship for three years. And I just found I wasn't enjoying the work. It didn't make me tick. And I know this is something that resonates with you and, and you, you, I mean, you're a perfect example in your own career of like following that thing that makes you tick. And I saw for me, what it was, was, you know, part of this apprenticeship program, which is really great. The accounting profession does is you have these, you know, each year you have these, uh, they're very training forward. So you have these like training weeks and a lot of different training events. And it's all about, um, you know, upskilling you so that you can eventually move into an in charge and a manager role. But the thing that, that drew me was just the people who were delivering those trainings looked like they were having so much fun. And I just, I just loved, like, I just wanted to be part of that. So I reached out to them. I sort of said how I could help out, like get involved in some internships. And so it was in that process that I fell in love with the sort of deconstructing what makes a good, in that case, accountant. And so, and then, you know, and then, and then the sort of community part of, of teaching people and that was just what made it fun and interesting. And so that was kind of how I got into that path and just followed the, the, the curiosity um, and the, the enjoyment part. And then, you know, then you get this feedback. So in that sort of internal motivator as well um, of seeing people click and get it. And like, there's nothing better for me. And that's why I've been doing this for 15 years and will continue for the rest of my life when you're an educator or a teacher, like seeing that light bulb moment, I know you've seen that with your clients and mm. um, it's, there's no, nothing better than that. That's like, that's, that is fuel to continue for months um, when you, when you have those little, those light bulb moments. So yeah, I think that's kind of what got me into it in the first place. Um, being with a big global. Uh, so you were at KPMG for quite a while. Right. KPMG, exactly. Yeah. And so being a global firm, it, it got me an opportunity to come here to the States. Uh, that was 11 years ago. And so I went from teaching the training in South Africa to developing it here in the US. And so it was th both sides of the spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was a really good learning experience. And I've also like, I think also like you have been driven, we talked about this earlier, like the lifelong learning, just driven by wanting to learn more. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to know how these courses were built and, and how they were, you know, were set up. And so that was the, the opportunity I had here. It was meant to just be for two years, but I loved it so much. Um, I loved the culture and the people that I met in the U S and so stayed. Um, and so I did that for about five years. And then I made this transition where I think I started really getting into, this is getting into the entrepreneurship side of what, what was like really cutting edge. Cause I think even KPMG to this day, there, it's still, it's such a big, massive organization and they have so much scale to, to deal with from a learning and development perspective that often like the way it works now, they continue to, to do it, right? It's, mm. a, it's not like there is a much of an incentive to like reimagine the way that they train things. I think maybe now with COVID, that's probably changing quite mm. a bit and friends of mine are still there to test to that. But um, yeah, so it was... Well, um, on that, just, and on that piece, you know, I recently was speaking with a client who um, was delivered. It was interesting the language she said. She said, um, "My team's 
my organization, they're delivering a leadership training to my organization. She said it as if like she was like accepting a package from UPS or something. Yeah, <laughs> and <exactly. laughs> it was very weird. Like even the language, like yeah. they're delivering a training to my organization. Yeah. I'm like, how generic can, does that sound? And then yeah. she had the training um, and we had our session the day after. So it was like a half day leadership workshop thing. And, and she said, um, it felt like, uh, the, the, the instructor in the training, they were trying to push content and get through a set curriculum in a finite amount of time so everyone can get back to work. And so there was little Q&A, there was little dialogue. Most questions were punted or addressed to an FAQ. And it was a, a, it was a live training. Yeah. But it was as if the 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 instead of a PowerPoint, it was just a person speaking the PowerPoints. And that's how it was. And I know I've been I've been put through the ringer of a lot of these trainings. Yeah. Um I don't know if that was your experience because you probably associated with other learning development or organizations and what they were doing yeah. in the corporate world. Is that primarily what your experience was? Did you yeah. see examples of people doing it right? What was it like when it was done right versus wrong? I'm just curious yeah. what you yeah. saw there. Yeah. I mean, what you just described is such a it perfectly encapsulates learning which I, learning is not the transfer of knowledge learning is the transformation of the student right that's like that's the key difference and um yesterday my wife is um she's also a, a cpa here in the us and so mm. she's had to do every three years a four hour ethics training mm. and um she took maternity leave this year and so she's basically catching up on all this training and it's this it was it, it made me cringe i mean it's a four hour slideshow of someone talking in the top right hand corner that's it that's the training and it's like and that's not that's not from a company i think um you know her company wouldn't have put something out like that but that's what you know the, the ethics boards are, are doing for training and so yeah that's just transfer of knowledge and that's not no one is learning from that hmm. um transformation of students is primarily peer-to-peer Right. If you think about just how learning happens organically in the workplace, it's from you, you reach over to the person next to you and you say, like, how do I do this thing? And you talk to someone like you, you, you talk to someone else who's, who's in the same experiencing the same challenges and, and going through the same journey as you. Right? And you learn from each other because you've all got these different experiences to bring to it. So that's where the really interesting stuff is happening. And I, we get to work with some really interesting and forward-thinking companies that are that are incorporating that, which is kind of cool because it's it's being able to bring the online course structure that you and I are now familiar with into a corporate setting, and like reimagine what that looks like. It's working really well in manager training and onboarding. So anything where you know someone is like new in a company or new in a role and needs to kind of upskill. Um, so being able to identify what those skills are and then allowing it's kind of great because there's no like you don't need super bells and whistles to do this it's just creating the right environment for people to learn from each other and to harness that and amplify that um that's really the that's the that's the cool push um cutting edge stuff i'm seeing hmm. um so so look just to go back to your your sort of career arc so you what was the move from kpmg to what you're doing now i mean what inspired you to go out on your own and yeah do something like how did that transition happen and what was that moment where you said hey i'm going to go do my do my own thing yeah 
So I did it in two stages. I think the thing I hear now from most people struggling with the idea of leaving the corporate world is it's a huge jump. It's massive, right? So um, for me, I did it in two steps and I was lucky in that I have friends who had started a business in South Africa. They grew it into a global hospitality training company based in Geneva. I helped, I, took, I came on board as a, as a head of their learning helped them kind of crystallize their learning, which they had intuitively figured out a lot of it themselves, but it was like the process of then de deconstructing why it works mm. for them. So we, we put a, a methodology around that. And then I helped them open a New York office and they've since been acquired by a company here in the US and they've all done very well for themselves. But I spent about a year and a half there, maybe two years. Um, it was a good bridge between the sort of more traditional environment of KPMG and like this really kind of pushing the envelope um, with big hotel chains and doing a bit of business development and that. So it gave me like a little bit of an experience of what it takes to run a business, which is very different to being a practitioner in the business, right? And that's, so that was a big, and still was a learning curve when I eventually sort of plucked up the courage to, to go out on my own. That transition, interesting enough as well, was because I felt like I, so the idea was, okay, I'm going to replicate what these guys are doing but for more traditional corporate clients like mm. my previous company or banks, for example. And I thought I'd lined up a bunch, I'd, a great network of people that worked at KPMG, JP Morgan, those kind of places. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to reinvent their, their compliance training, you know, and like, and it's going to be a great fit and everyone's going to love it. And so that gave me the courage to, to kind of eventually go out that and a, and a very supporting wife as well. Um, and very, very important part of this. Whole. Huge, huge, huge. <laughs> Definitely, like, yeah, I mean, I could not have done any of this without her. So, um, but it gave me that courage to do that. But then the interesting thing, Ravi, was that I've never done a, any work with a bank ever. Like, it was, it, it gave me the courage to do it. I've worked with um, KPMG in, in various capacities, but that initial idea has completely morphed into something else. Hmm. And so, one of the lessons I learned was that you have to listen to your market and they tell you what they want. And I came with this very like, you know, preconceived idea. I'd done like decks on it and all that sort of stuff. And none of that mattered because what they actually wanted was something different. Hmm. Um, and I think just being open to listening to that and then being like, and that in the early stages, just saying yes to everything. Yeah, we'll do that. We can figure that out. We, you know, um, that helped me kind of form what we are now doing. Hmm. And so Curious Lion is the name of the company. Yeah. Um, how did you find that first client? How did that happen? Yeah, so it's such a weird luck. Luck is is the answer um, because, like I said, I, I went out. I you know did all this sort of business development work in the personal network, and with the training business, it's also a very long sales cycle. So it takes took it takes a long time to to get any of that to bed in. But while I was doing that, it was the first summer of of working on my own. A someone reached out to me on LinkedIn who had interviewed at the hospitality training company that I worked at around the same time I was leaving. And she saw I had worked there and she was going to reach out to ask me about what it was like to work there and all that sort of thing. And she didn't end up getting the position and I guess kept in, uh, check, you know, checked in on me or whatever and thought I had kind of gone off and done my own thing. And so, and she had then got a role at this company called 1010 Data. And that's really where we got our start. And she reached out and she was new in the role so it was a perfect fit because she wanted to do all these great things 
she needed to bring in a, a content partner and, and a strategy partner to, to, to um, execute on those. And that's where we started. And we started with some small projects with them. And, you know, we've, we've still friends to this day. We, we did work together for two years. Mm. Um, after that, just multiple projects, one after the other. And yeah, so, you know, a little bit of luck and just, and, and like I said, and that was software. We were doing software training, like, and it was something I never thought we would do software training, mm. you know? And so since then we've had quite a few software clients. Yeah. Well, I'd love, you know, many of the listeners are, um, uh, managers, leaders in technology industry, other industries, they care about personal development. They don't necessarily work in training and development, but they care about learning. Uh, yeah. That's a common common theme with many people who read my blog or I, I work with. And so what have you seen when you look at, uh, say, organizations or teams? What have you seen about how they do learning, how they do development that you seem to be, that seems to be off not working, right? Uh, mm-hmm. What do you see the good, bad, and ugly? And then what do you also see as just some common things that might move the needle? Because I know I can ima- imagine an engineering leader who's running a team of 50 people. Um, they're having to skill up constantly, learn new coding languages, learn new frameworks, acquire companies, integrate their technology. Yeah. There's constant learning um, and there's a lack of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if, if that sets the stage, I mean, what do you typically see in companies that, okay, th- this is tends to be what's broken. This tends yeah. to be what works. And this might be a, a solution to, to help them climb out of that pit of despair, yeah. <laughs> learning despair. Yeah, that's a very, very vivid description. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the thing that the biggest mistake I see companies make is trying to, and it's because it's the easiest way is to just buy content, right? Or, or, or build it, but often buy it. And so it's like, it feels like, okay, it's a bandaid. Like I, we need to learn, we need to teach everyone, you know, I don't know, let's pick a skill, like uh, to be better coaches of their team. And so we, let's get someone in or we buy a course on that and we'll, then, then we're done, right? We taught them coaching. But you haven't implemented it. Like that's the biggest difference. And so there's a couple couple of things that come from that that I think companies could do better, and and or, or that I've seen work really well at companies that are doing this is create an environment. So there's nothing wrong with bringing in content from outside. I think that's actually very smart because um, often those people are the experts. But you've got to like you've got to operationalize it. You've got to you've got to be able to implement it. And the best way I've seen to do that is to bring if it's managers, for example, bring them together to talk about these frameworks, these models that they learned, that they've learned about, and then to give them specific prompts to, to take action in the real world. So mm-hmm. let's all meet this week and then, you know, discuss it and what it means to you and what some of the challenges you think are. And let's hear from each other so that you, you, we can do kind of a group sharing on that and then go and often actually pick someone on your team and have this discussion and try that that model that we just learned, the four Ps or you know, whatever. And then next week, we're all going to get back together again and we're going to discuss how it went and what some of the challenges and what the learnings are. And we started doing this now with a few companies, um, actually mostly in the Bay Area. And they, I mean, the one, we finished a six-week learning sprint with, it was a pilot, a six VP level, like very, they're like second highest level of, of management. And every single person that went through it came back, first of all, saying, we've never had an opportunity to talk about it like this. So it was cross-functional as well. Mm. So they were learning from like legal, finance, HR, right? 
Um, we've never had an opportunity to talk about this this in this level of detail. And, to, and it was like, it was a vulnerable space. Like they were sharing like people on their teams that they were worried about. And and like and, and then other, other people were giving them advice on how to approach it. And so they were learning a lot from that. Um, and then we heard from people in the business, HRBPs that mm. came back and said, you know, this Joe who went through the course is like a different person now. He's a different person. And and that's that to me is transformation, right? Like you've 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 turned this person into a better version of themselves. They have no, they've turned themselves into a better version of themselves mm. by taking action, by reflecting, and by talking about that with people. Mm. You know, and there's not it's not really a secret. Many yeah. like bells and whistles to that, right? It's like, it's um. You said this to me before as well. It's very human, just very human. Hmm. Um, and so yeah, so that's where I've I've seen some of the the really special training happen in in the last while. Why do you think people? I mean, this echoes of the dinner party idea. You know, get people together talking. <laughs> yeah, create create the space where you can have good conversation on meaningful stuff. Yeah. Why uh, exactly what I witnessed sort of core to my whole coaching process is having space for conversation, yeah. taking action and uh, talking about what was learned and realized through that action of living your life, doing your job. Yeah. It doesn't sound like rocket science, but so few people do it. Um, yeah. uh, even I bump into people who say, Hey, I'd love to work with you, but do you have like a course? Do you have like some video? Do you have yeah. a, a Coursera, a Udemy or <laughs> Coursera version? Mm -hmm. Um, that yeah. I can take. My personal feeling is I've started many of those courses. I've finished very few. Um, so it does feel like a simple solution, create space and good dialogue over time. It rarely seems to happen. What I've yeah. witnessed is when it happens, it can happen at very senior levels. But, you know, I'm coaching a lot of clients at big tech companies. There are thousands of managers. Yeah. So I'm just curious why you think more people aren't doing it. Do they not know? Do people not value it? Do training and learning, learning and development teams who live and breathe this stuff, do they not know? Yeah. Is it simply time and resource? Like what's, uh, yeah. what is the blocker here? It's a good question. I think a couple of things come to mind. It's, it's, made, it's simple in process, but it's quite hard to execute. Um, you know, especially the beginning, it's, it's also just, it's, it's a lot of work for, for the people to go through it, to, to open themselves up, first of all, to carve out time in, in their busy schedules, right? So that's, and that's like prioritizing. And, and this is where another problem a lot of companies have, like leadership buy-in is so, so important to show. So in this program, we had the CEO of this public company, show you know show up at the beginning and the end of this learning sprint to really just drive home like how important those sessions were um so that's sort of the, a key starting point um but and then people like it's a little bit awkward at first like people you know they don't so it's, it feels like a lot of work like i'm gonna talk about this challenges on my team and um so that's where a good facilitator comes in to kind of start that conversation and then one or two people and we you know my client picked six people that she thought would be a good fit for for that so it also relies on that cohort the the quality of the cohort but once you got one or two people going then it, that's when it starts to feel easy that's when it starts to feel like oh like we should have been doing this all along um, but i think there's this big barrier to entry for for a couple of those reasons i said the, the learning uh, the leadership buy-in and the the fact that it's just like 
difficult to kind of get that momentum going of people sharing, you know, their challenges with each other. And um, yeah, th those are the two big ones, I think, because, you know, so, some of the other more tactical stuff is just figuring out what content to cover, what, how to structure that um, and, and how to pre-train people so that you're not wasting a lot of time on transferring knowledge in those sessions. You want to respect the time, the hour or hour and a half you have to really just allow people to talk. And actually, and that's the last thing I'll say is that it's also for a facilitator. If it's, they're not a professional facilitator, it's quite hard to like be, especially if you're the expert to just actually let most of that session be about the participants talking amongst mm. each other. Right. And just facilitating that, not like not having a strong opinion on which direction it should go in, but just kind of putting the guardrails in place. That, you know, it's a great point. And, most professionals, I believe, come in expecting to be taught like they were taught in college yeah. or high school. Yeah. So, yeah. so they're going to sit, kick back with their coffee and just sort of multitask while they take it in. Exactly. So there's a level, there's almost an expectation setting of, no, you'll be speaking and thinking. And I, I, I mean, I'm so sorry. I was closing with a client this week who was a senior leader at Facebook, uh, engineering yeah. leader, and we were wrapping up. So one-on-one -on -one coaching. And uh, I caught him at the end of the day. Okay. He's had back to back since 7 a.m. And we're closing, and I uh, had some questions I asked. Uh, what is he learning about himself? What is he learning about what's useful for him and his team and his life? And a few other questions. Okay. And I gave him the questions, and I just said, I actually emailed them ahead of time, knowing full well he wasn't going to see. And he didn't. He's like, yeah, I've got so I just, there's no way. I didn't even look at it. I'm like, great. Take 10 minutes now and reflect on these questions. I mean, 10 minutes wasn't that much time. I would have loved to give him half an hour, but 10 minutes, reflect on these questions, jot down some notes, and then we'll talk about it. And he looked at me and he said, and he was smiling when he said, he said, this is a multiple select question, right? Like you're going to give me options like a checkbox. I don't have yeah. to actually think and create. And he was joking, <laughs> but the point was his mind yeah. had sort of been wrung out like a wet sponge. Yeah. Uh, and and then of course after a few minutes he settled and, and was able to really connect with his learning. But what yeah. you're saying definitely makes sense. There's a level. There's a. It's like I don't know what to call it. Effortless effort. Like there's yeah. effort, but once you get going, you're in a groove. It's like the yeah. zone that you get in. Yeah. But that initial breaking the ice, the trained facilitation is, yeah. I mean, myself is, as a coach, this is a hard, hard thing. To, it's a skill. Yeah, it is a skill. Yeah, 100%. And another thing I'll say as well is like, it's not, what I'm finding now is that there's less and less, um, I think, emphasis on assessment. Like it's more, you mentioned, it's like reflection. That's yeah. what's important. Right? If the learner is connecting with their personal meaning and reason for, for, for learning that skill, they're going to get so much more out of it because they're getting, they're, they're connected with why they are doing it. Um, whereas you don't like at the end, like to coach people, okay, what was the model? What are the four P's in this model? Like that, I mean, that's meaningless, right? Um, it's whether you can apply that. So, yeah. Which is how we're taught in school. Unfortunately. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. this is the problem. No, again, with this client who shared it with the leadership training, they learned a specific model. And I actually, a mentor of mine who uh, went into business consulting, then became an executive coach, trained psychologist. And so he had a private practice for 20 some years. And I have utmost respect for psychology. My wife is a therapist. I have utmost respect. But he was sharing how he learned 77 models in his uh, doctoral program. 
77 different models um, that he had to understand, digest, yeah. practice, and use. And he said at the end of the day, it became so much. He just sort of, as he worked with clients, discovered <laughs> a way of being with the clients that was useful. And he might pick a model here and there, but it was not about the models. But often in business, I find that's the case too. I mean, yeah. I, I was looking on Amazon. There were last, in the US, 150,000 leaders. You could just type leadership, like between yeah. ebooks and books. Yeah. It's, it's infinite. It's, it's <laughs> infinite. Yeah. I, I think one thing I'll say to all, all the managers and, and people that, that are, leading teams out there that are listening to this is another thing you can think about is just curating that knowledge mm -hmm. for people. That's an incredibly valuable um, offer or um, service to, to provide to your team because it's really just about like them knowing where to access the content when they need it. They don't need to memorize any of this stuff, but if they know which one of those books you should read and maybe in what order, and, you know, like that all, and videos and all this great content that's out there, um, that's that's a huge value add already and gives everyone kind of a, a bit of an unfair advantage to, to know yeah. where to access. And we have them. tools now. We have, you know, uh, wikis, even corporate networks. You can build wikis yeah. and or yeah. use your, your your flavor of OneNote, Evernote, Notion. Rome. Exactly. Pick your exactly. thing. You can sort of yeah. crowdsource knowledge and wisdom from the group organically as it would suit your team. So if you're just managing a five-person team, it's like, what's working for you? Yeah. Oh, I, I love that. Um, I started doing that with my team now. We have a, a one channel on our Slack to learning and we, you know, I'll post a video in there or whatever. And, and, and I'll sort of encourage, like I, I needed to at the beginning, but now it's just people just start putting their, their notes from that video underneath it. And it's just, it's amazing because, you know, you read through how other people, what's resonating with them and you pick up so much more nuance to that. And then it's the shared uh, experience, the shared knowledge within the group. The group, you know, now you're you're all thinking and talking the same language. Makes onboarding a lot easier. I used to do that with my teams. Yeah. I mean, this was back in the uh, a while ago. We didn't quite have all the tools we have now, but I mean, we just have a Word doc on SharePoint, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Very corporate. <laughs> we have a Word doc on SharePoint with a big table of contents, and everyone, every time I started creating a template. Every time we'd hire someone, I typically have a, you know, they'd have their manager, uh, either it was me or someone else, and then they'd have a mentor who was more like a peer friend to help. And the mentor was responsible for updating that Word doc and making sure that it had everything they needed. And then as they ramped up, they would then add to it. So it'd be this evolving document of just tips and tricks and people to talk to and things to go and books to read and like sort of yeah. insider not inside baseball on the team and how it operated. Yeah. It became a quite nice artifact and got the team in the learning mode. I don't want to overblow it, but 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 for me, it felt like it got everyone involved in helping each other learn and grow and, and sharing knowledge if they read a good book or read a good HBR article or had a good conversation with a peer team to capture some of that so it's not lost, which I feel like in tech... So much wisdom is lost. Yeah, people change every two years. Change yeah. teams, change companies. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting point that you're making here because one of the probably the number one uh, challenge I see my clients having in the B two B space and in in a, in a learning sense 
is how to create, they come to me with this question, how do I create a culture of continuous learning? How do I create a team of lifelong learners, right? That's like, if we're working on this and I, you know, if we can crack this, I think that is solving almost every business's cha biggest challenge. Um, like that, if you get, if your entire company has this culture of learning, like you, you, you have this like incredible force field around you, right? It's just, you're generating so much knowledge and you've got ways to, to so I, I've talked about, I've written quite a bit about this flywheel idea. It's something we're working on for next year. I mean, if you can create that flywheel, you, you can, you can just start feeding in content and that's really all you need to do. Like if, the, the people take care of that themselves and um, the, the sort of spreading of that knowledge and the sharing and the teasing out the crowdsourcing, like you say. So, yeah, I think that's such a, such a great example that you just shared there as well of, of how to go about, how to think about creating this culture of continuous learning. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the flywheel. Like what, what is it? So I'm, I can see why that matters. Um, yeah. And for me, there's from a from from a mind state of mind perspective, what learning seems to do for me is is gets me focused on the journey versus the outcome, the 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 process versus the reward. And yeah. from a coaching standpoint and a psychology standpoint, there are clear benefits of that: lower stress, mm -hmm. uh, more clarity, less less pressure. <laughs> Yeah, have less pressure. They perform better. They collaborate better. So, uh, the learning focus is, seems to be more of a present focus versus a future. Even though you can have learning outcomes, it really gets you out of this, you know, charge the hill, plant my flag yeah. at the top mentality. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, while having a vision is important, that mindset gets can get in the way of learning and just collaboration in general. Yeah. but yeah. can you speak a bit to what you mean by a flywheel and? Yeah. Yeah, so an important point I think to lead into this is to say that you know a lot of a lot of like these senior executives have trouble sometimes letting their team go off and do training because they think it's like taking them away from their their work and part of what the flywheel is trying to say and show is something that I think you and I both agree is just doing is learning like you're you're learning every single day on the job just doing the work that you're doing having conversations with people um, on, your, on your team for, with clients all of that so the idea of like you saying that wiki and like having a having a mechanism for people to share that um, is a very important component of this um, so it's basically there's there's like there's four components to it there's the learner which is everyone that's all of us um, and the peer and that's also all of us right but in that relationship between you and your peers um, as learners learn from peers they develop skills and so and become experts so that's the third element and experts are people subject matter experts within organizations who've built up that institutional knowledge that is evolving all the time um and so you it's you, you know you can feed it with outside content but you need to have thought about how that organic knowledge works right because even with cu culture the company culture is changing all the time as people are getting added so you need to have some way of capturing that organically um, and then experts and the knowledge that they create feed into teachers and teachers slash mentors i sort of see those two as distinct roles but um but but two very important in terms of amplifying the knowledge that experts have accumulated mm -hmm. okay and then so and then teachers in teaching learners become learners themselves mm -hmm. so that completes that flywheel from learner to peer to expert to teacher back to learner and if you can see that in 
with one program, like that learning sprint I talked about, that six-week program, everyone who went through that is now eligible to be a mentor for the next one. And so now when you talked about like you've got, you know, maybe 15 senior um, level management and 150, you know, mid-level management, you can now scale that kind of learning sprint by having those alumni of those initial ones lead ones with their team and have, you know, 10 managers join those. And you've got all these sort of learning sprints happening around um, whatever content is needed at the time. And that's the part that you can just feed and just drop in like whatever the, the content you've identified as the most uh, high leverage, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if what just popped into my mind is maybe as part of this is, uh, and another thing missing in the way I see training done today is having students be the teacher. <laughs> mm. You know, there's this kind of, um, like I, I, I used to often hire vendors and trainers to come yeah. in, do, yeah. do workshops for us and train us on stuff. And, yeah. and you get someone who has expertise and there's a ton of value in that, right? Yep. But then I, I think about myself, you know, uh, I used to teach yoga. And I remember I was like totally like a yoga nerd, right? Mm -hmm. And then... And then one day, uh, Lisa, my teacher, studio owner said, you know, Ravi, you really love yoga. You want to learn, right? I'm like, yeah, like I want to master handstand on duos. She's like, yeah. well, you start teaching. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not ready. I yeah. your... She's like, no, if you want to learn, like teaching is how you learn. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's that, that kind of aspect to it exactly. where as part of this loop, having students maybe moderate and facilitate and teach. Yeah. And I think that's also just a different way of relating to what it means to be a teacher, what it means to be a leader and facilitator. Like if you're a brand new boss, well, why can't you teach what it means to manage? Why not? You see it fresh. Why not? Yeah. 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 And yeah, I love that. And and, and I imagine uh, I would invite your, your listeners to, to and viewers to imagine this now. You've got, so you've got, what, what's great about that is you've got, so when you're teaching, it forces you to clarify your thinking, right? And you've got to be able to explain it at first principles to people. So now imagine that's happening across your organization. Imagine now you've got 15, 20 senior level managers doing that for, for their next level. And it's so, I mean, you can't not get the, the essence and the culture of that company embedded in people's minds like that, right? Like it's just, it's so scalable. Yeah. Well, I see, I see a lot of potential there. Just, I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit and just talk about you just for the last few minutes. And cool. as a lifelong learner, I'm curious for you, you know, what learning curve or curves are you on? Where is your growing edge in your business, in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the, the, one of the, the first that come to mind for me, a big one for next year is systems thinking. Like really starting to deconstruct my business into its component parts and all the systems that make that up, that make up the overall system of that business. Because I think like most business owners, when they get started, and I was, I've been working, you know, right at the beginning, it was me doing all of the, creating all the training. And so, you know, I've slowly built up a team over the, over the last few years, but it still relies a lot on me being in the business as opposed to working on the business. And a huge component of that for me is systems thinking. Um, and so we've been building SOPs throughout the year and, you know, we've got those kind of things in place, but it's, there's a more macro level SOP of understanding. Being. 
uh, standard operating procedures. Yeah. Um, for, for various things, but that's a, that's a micro level and it helps with the little things, but we need to, we need to be thinking more macro, like how, how can this system function without me, to be honest? I mean, that's kind of the, the goal here. Um, if this thing is going to be sustainable. So that's a big one. Um, there's, there's quite a few great thinkers and books on, on this topic. And so I'm going to be uh, definitely investing a lot of time in that. Um, I will be getting back into notion in a big way. Cause I see that as a, as a great tool to, to make systems thinking come to life and, and be able to share that with the team. Um, so, yeah. And then I think the other one is just how to become a better manager. You know, we do, we get to make a lot of this great training for companies like PagerDuty and Pinterest. And now, and I've learned a lot from that, but I, I need to invest in, in my own skill at doing that because the system still relies on people, right? And I need to be able to empower them to do their best work. Um, so, yeah, I, there's, an, there's, there's a never-ending amount of knowledge out there and skill that, that um, yeah, I'm just I'm excited to start on those two things. Mm. And if people would like to learn more about you, about Curious Lion, about what your company does, where should they go? Yeah, so curiouslionlearning.com. Um, we've got a little resources section, which, um, which would be a good place to start with some of my essays. Um, we have a podcast called, how did you learn that? Um, you were on recently, which was, I actually got someone complimenting me yesterday on that, on that episode, by the way. Um, and yeah, just fascinating conversations with people to really unpack cognitively and, and, you know, process wise, how they learn something. Um, so, and then, um, we'll be releasing an online course next year as well on, on this topic. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the best place. Um, you can email me at Andrew at curiouslionlearning.com and on Twitter at um, Bazaruto, which is B-A-Z-Z-A-R-U-T-O. Awesome. Well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Take care and happy learning. Thank you for having me here, Ravi.